So what we need is both top-down and bottom-up approach, I would argue, where consumers and citizens understand how their best interest is tied into um, the interests of companies and organizations. And to do that, we also need to help people have a better and deeper understanding of complex systems. Hi there, and welcome to another episode of the Future Ready podcast, where we explore how to build future-ready organizations in a new never normal. My name is Arne Kötting, founder of Cozin and your host. In the last episode of this two-part podcast, we spoke to Dr. Victoria Hood about how purpose-driven organizations can help create sustainability transformations at the system level. We took on a macro lens and defined sustainability as long-term well-being for all. For those of you who haven't listened to this episode, I strongly recommend to hear this first. Today, we invite you to zoom in and look at the role of individuals in bringing about these transformations. How is the term sustainability perceived right now? And what are some of our human biases that makes this green transformation particularly challenging, especially with the required scale and speed? Neuroscience can be a powerful ally in answering these questions and in making sustainability happen on the micro scale. After all, businesses are made of people and as with every change, it'll not happen if people don't buy into it. In this episode, we will still be with Victoria, but also joined by Dr. Brandy Shaw Morris. Brandy studies sustainable change by incorporating approaches from neurosciences, behavior science, and psychology. Her research areas include areas such as what makes people believe in change and triggers decisions, and what are drivers of engagement. She has worked in both academia and the private sector for more than 15 years and is currently an assistant professor at Aarhus University in Denmark. Together, we will explore how to implement sustainability at the individual level. We will draw on research insights to understand how to shape narratives around sustainability and how to successfully embed a culture of sustainability. Victoria, I'm happy to continue our chat today. And Brandy, welcome to the Future Ready podcast. It's great to have you here. Thanks for having me. Thank you for having us. Yes. Brandy, let's start by speaking a bit about terminology. In the first part of this episode, we spoke about how the term sustainability can work either as an engagement driver or something that prevents people from acting. How happy are you with the term sustainability and all the other concepts floating around in terms of winning the hearts and minds of employees? Well, as we have discussed, you and I before, I don't love the term sustainability only because uh, most people don't actually understand what it means and it's kind of lost its meaning. It's become a term that means is everything and nothing at the same time. But I love the way Victoria defines it. And I love the fact that she's brought that together with and made it interchangeable with the idea of well-being, because I think that well-being, it also coheres very well with this sort of what our brains are wired to do uh, neurologically, um, and that is to seek pleasure and avoid pain. And so I like this idea of substituting the word well-being for sustainability. I think it's a much more meaningful term that people can relate to because it's something that we all strive for. I'm super curious to learn more about you on how our understanding of sustainability works at the brain level. Now, sustainability is certainly one of the more challenging transformations to engage people in. Just because the activities of today 
will only have an impact in maybe 50 years or so. And um, from a behavioral science perspective and considering the idea that people seek immediate pleasure and reward, I assume that sustainability can be quite a difficult concept for our brains to grasp. Could you elaborate on that a little bit and talk about the challenges of engaging people with the concept of sustainability? Yes, well, I, I think at the risk of being overly reductivist or reductionist, I would say that I always come back to ever since I started studying neuroscience, mm -hmm. so many things uh, make so much more sense. But if you think about it, our brain's main purpose is not thinking. And that's what we typically tend to believe. Our brain's main purpose is to make sure that our body is, is the, basically the optimal allocation of our bodily resources our metabolic resources, of our energetic resources. So our brain's main job is to make sure that those resources are allocated in the best possible way. And to that end, one of the things that it's doing is constantly scanning our environment for risk, mm -hmm. risks and threats to our survival and to our well-being. So part of the problem is definitely that we, when it comes to, for example, climate change, some people would say it's happening so fast But others would say it's actually happening almost so slowly as to be nearly imperceptible. So in terms of risk, some of this change has been happening. Yes, it's rapidly in terms of the, the you know, the timescale of humanity. But on the other hand, it's happening very slowly. Um, and we're very good. We're very evolutionarily adapted to react to threats that trigger our cerebral alarms right here and right mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. So one of the The problems is, of course, is that we don't adequately perceive the risk. We, Yes, we know, as Victoria was saying, the, the reports and the data are increasingly urgent. But at the same time, we don't actually perceive how dangerous it is for us right here and right now. And so when even people, many people who care, and I totally agree with Victoria about the importance of really understanding how this ties into worldview and values, because in the end, the, the brain is motivated to pay attention to and to allocate scarce bodily resources, because you have to think of our bodily resources as a budget, mm -hmm. really. And part of the problem in our, for example, modern societies, and I won't digress into this, is that we're probably exceeding our bodily budgets and running a deficit Uh, more often than we realize and could be related to many of the epidemics we see around anxiety and stress and depression and these sorts of things. One of the neuroscientists that I admire most, Lisa Feldman Barrett, she and her team actually believe that much, if not all, of mental illness can actually be attributed to what she calls metabolic disarray. And in other words, just simply that our metabolic resources are uh, allocated in uh, an efficient and good way. So we have to think about that. This is why I really like that term of well-being because it brings together, typically when we hear the word well-being, it's kind of a fluffy concept, mm. but it actually has bodily consequences. So going back to that, why do people not worry more about climate change? Because they're worried about paying their bills today, because they're worried about a sick family member because they're worried about how they're going to pick their child up from school when they have a late meeting. So these very salient, immediate risks tend to trump the more long-term thinking around things. And that's simply because we have a limited and scarce amount of bodily resources. We can't think and we can't care about everything at the same time. So this is one of the reasons why we need to understand, as Victoria was saying, how these things tie into the longer term, into the bigger picture. We need new narratives. We need new stories for what's possible in terms of how, for example, to run a sustainable business. 
just as one one tiny example. Mm-hmm. So this short-term thinking applies, obviously, as, as Victoria was discussing, when it comes to maximizing shareholder wealth, to incentive structures and companies and organizations. Look at the incentive structure and you can kind of almost always predict the outcome. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't always align with what companies say. So what we need is both top-down and bottom-up approach, I would argue, where consumers and citizens understand how their best interest is tied into um, the interests of companies and organizations. And to do that, we also need to help people have a better and deeper understanding of complex systems. I think that's one of the other problems, right, is that things are not simple. Mm. And so helping people understand and think in complex systems and how things fit together and how their behavior as consumer citizens actually affects things on a global level. How does what they buy or the kind of bag they use or how much food they waste or how much meat they consume, how does that actually tie into these global problems? Because we can't obviously engineer or we can try, but we're not going to effectively create one-off campaigns that get people, consumers, behaviorally to every single change that we need them to make. We can obviously target high-impact, high-leverage behaviors, But at the same time, we really need to help people learn to think in complex systems. Mm, Very interesting. Educating people to think in complex systems doesn't seem like a trivial task. How can we do that? And what is the time frame we are talking about? Yeah, well, I actually, now we're getting, we're not off topic because this is super important. But I mention this because I have actually a project that I'm working on with a couple of colleagues um, and potentially also with a foundation to talk about this. Because, I mean, we can get more into the implementation side of things and make it more concrete. But I just wanted to mention that as more of, it's a meta challenge, but it's extremely important because these behaviors we can again we can tell people so you shouldn't use a plastic bag try to buy things that are reusable and and things like this but people need to so also from a neurological perspective they need to understand how their own individual behavior actually has this ripple effect and i think that's one of the things that's really hard for people to understand and think we know I mean, I think we, we can all probably relate to this, even those of us on this podcast who are talking about caring so much about the environment, about sustainability, about having a sustainable future, about climate change. When we're actually standing in a concrete situation where we're under pressure, where we're stressed, you know, mm-hmm. there's a reprioritization of our values in that moment. So if I'm in a hurry and I I don't know, the container I'm going to use for my child's lunch is dirty and I don't have time to whatever, then I might just be tearing off a piece of tinfoil for their sandwich instead of using the more sustainable option for their lunch. I'm just using a very tactical example here because we're constantly faced with this values action gap where we're we're having to prioritize. Mm-hmm. And so that's why this idea of helping people think more in systems and understand the the long-term consequences of many small decisions, micro habits, things like that actually does have a massive impact globally. So I don't know if that answers your question. It certainly does. Okay. So you're speaking at the very micro level here, but this is also relevant for whole societies. And my question here is, how do you make sure that sustainability stays at the top of people's minds and continues to be relevant in the face of more imminent crises. 
at corporate level, many companies are currently facing economic crises, layoffs, cost cutting, and much more. And on top of that, as we discussed with Victoria, not everyone in these corporate settings understands the importance or urgency of sustainability. In these contexts, how can we make sure that sustainability is still seen as a priority? Yeah, I'm not sure I can answer that um, because that's a very big and broad question. But I would say that if we were sitting on a team together trying to figure that out in terms of a concrete company that we worked in together, I would be going back to what Victoria was talking about earlier in terms of how we define sustainability. Mm -hmm. And if we substitute the word well-being and we say, okay, what does that mean? So, for example, you know, it might seem like uh, on paper a really quick and easy solution to just fire 15% of the workforce or X number of employees. But what kind of knock-on and ripple effect is that going to have for the rest of our workforce? So the month, the interim month where we're, they're waiting to hear who's going to be laid off, how much stress is that going to create? How much is that going to compromise productivity? How much is that going to, in terms of the people who actually then are spared, are they going to be starting to look for new jobs because they immediately know that, hey, this is not necessarily the safest place to be, so I better start looking elsewhere. I completely agree with with what you say there, Brandy. Um, and you focused in on there on that sort of second logic of uh, an enlightened approach where where decisions are made in terms of the long term financial self interest of the company, not the short term. Um, and I think the 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 important thing is how do we systematize those decisions? Uh, because a culture is essentially worldviews enacted in decision-making in a systematized way through either the software, the norms and customs, or the hardware, the systems, processes, and structures. And if we think about what shapes well, the worldviews and the cultural hardware and software, this is where governance comes in. Because if we want organizations that are going to be able to routinely make decisions that are not undermining mm. the ability of everyone to have well-being on this planet at all, uh, then we need those things in place. Yes, and actually, I, I did want to say something too. When Victoria was talking earlier, I was thinking about how, again, governance is not my area of expertise. Mm. However, I I would strongly encourage your listeners, uh, Anna, who are interested in thinking more about this, to watch a TED talk. Uh, it's a TEDx Zurich talk by a guy named Armin Stuernagel, mm -hmm. and uh, it's called "Transforming Ownership to Create a Better Economy." and What I find is really interesting and having worked for a foundation owned company myself at one point uh, and also spent a lot of my career as a strategist serving uh, NGOs and nonprofits, I think it's really interesting to consider as one example. Now we're really getting away from communication, and, and but if you, we want to talk about implementation of some of these things, thinking about the impact of corporate ownership and mm. kind of the massive impact that... For example, as Armin mentions uh, in this TED Talk, what it means to have a global economy that's founded on basically a system where around 87%, and these out, these numbers might be outdated a little bit now, I think it's about, it's a few years old, that talk, but 87% comes from insurance and pension funds. And I know a lot's happened since he spoke about this, but this transition to, for example, a foundation-owned model where 
for example, these companies tend to perform, I think it was something like 6% better in both the medium and long term in all of the most meaningful metrics about what it means to, to be a high-performing company. So thinking about, uh, it's so easy for us to abdicate responsibility and say, oh my God, the global economy and companies and shareholders and all these things, but to actually understand that our money, for example, through our insurance companies, through our pensions, is being used or has been traditionally used against us in so many ways. And so even just a thing like starting to understand the role that that ownership structure has on the ability to think more medium and long term, I think is super important. It's super important and we will definitely put this in the show notes. Brandy, let's focus a little bit more on communicating about sustainability. Mm -hmm. So what do you think are the critical success factors or challenges in communicating about these topics or in shaping these kind of new narratives that engage people? What are the kind of do's and don'ts that we need to consider here? Well, I think one of the first things coming back to this idea that constantly remembering what our brains are doing, they're trying to allocate our energetic and bodily resources in an optimal way. And that, that there's scarcity around that. So that means that the things that are going to get our attention are going to be the things that relate to things we really care about. And fundamentally, first and foremost, of course, that is our survival from a very primal perspective. Our brains are scanning our environment for risk and dangers and threats to our survival and ultimately to our thriving. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that I think we need to think more about, and I see this particularly in relation to I'm really surprised, it has been my experience both as a consultant and as a researcher, as a scientist, is that scientists and a lot of communicators who are talking about sustainability and climate-related issues are not actually acknowledging the fundamental biological reality that is attentional scarcity. So what I mean by that is, again, thinking about uh, something that in the private sector we know by heart. And that is first and foremost to really understand what your target audience cares about. And this is where we come back to values and worldview. Because first of all, and, and then it's going to sound like I'm kind of getting away from this, but hang with me a second. What I said before about this algorithm and this, this the brain kind of constantly predicting what's coming next, because that's what it's doing, because it's efficient to predict Uh, kind of automatically what's happening next. Emotion plays a huge role in this. And so this idea that we have as kind of modern people, that if we could just get people to think, quote unquote, rationally, um, then they would make better decisions. Modern neuroscience shows that people actually make less what we would consider to be rational decision. Uh, that was very unscientific. I shouldn't say shows, but suggests, but you know, that we make actually less rational, not more rational decisions when areas of our brain that are associated with emotion are impeded. So emotion, we need to acknowledge also from a fundamentally biological level is actually data. The data is not just data. Emotion is also data. And so this is one of the reasons why stories are a more effective way of communicating data than just giving people uh, charts and graphs. And please hear me, I'm not saying that there isn't a place for charts and graphs. It's very important to have solid data. But what I'm talking about is how we embed the data. And a lot of people think of stories, for example, of this sort of fluffy, fictional thing. But th this is a very inaccurate uh, understanding our brains are actually wired to decode the world in story structure. And if you think of story as a structure, like the framework of a house, you can embed and lay data on top of that structure. And the structure has some essential features. One of those features, for example, 
is uh, an identifiable character. Mm. And that character, if you think about some of the, the, the stories that um, tend to move us, tend to persuade us, some a company like Pixar has this down, right? They know mm. how to make adults cry while watching a cartoon uh, of a little cowboy who gets who falls off of a truck, right? Um, it makes no logical sense that we would be emotionally moved as adults, and now I'm not talking about kids, but by a cartoon character. And yet something in us, when we bond with another person, even if it's a fictional character, it could be a real character on the news, someone we see a very moving story, we actually release a neuropeptide called oxytocin, which then creates a pro-social, it's a, it's a pro-social bonding hormone, among other things. It also does other things. It's a very complex hormone, so I don't want to oversimplify that. But it actually creates a need and a desire in us to want to help that person or to do something to fix a situation. So bringing that back to sustainability, for example, there's no one-size-fits-all story. There's no magic bullet story. But what we do know is that we all have a tendency to bond with people who we perceive to share our values and our worldviews. And so understanding the core values and worldviews of your target audience, and please note that I say here, because I've sat in so many situations, whether it's private sector or public, or uh, even in my research, where let's say at the university, we're talking about how to reach our target audience, let's say whether it's students or journals or it's whoever it is, that the most dangerous thing you can do, in my view, professionally, is absolutely to design something or engineer something for people in the room. Mm -hmm. the people you're working with. Because it's so easy for sustainability people to try to think that, well, now we need to paint about our biospheric values and how much we care about nature and the environment and all these things. And Victoria alluded to this earlier, but it's so important to realize that people are different. There's a lot of variation. There are some core things. Yes, there are some core archetypes and some core stories that maybe most people resonate with. But you know, take a movie like Star Wars, there are people who resonate with Darth Vader. There are people who resonate with uh, the, the change and the struggle and the transformation that Anakin underwent as he went from a sweet, you know, from someone's son, so to speak, to a very evil character in the film. And I think that um, all of us obviously have darkness and light. We all have been on different life journeys. And this might sound really fluffy, but that actually translates into our core values, what we worry most about, what we care most about. And that should have a very concrete effect in how we implement our communication. So for example, if I'm on a strategy team and I have a bunch of sustainability people in the room, I understand why they care and what they care about because mm. I've hung out with those people enough professionally to understand that. But if I'm trying to reach a conservative segment of the population who tends to be fiscally and socially conservative, I'm going to be translating those core values in a very different way in terms of what that communication campaign looks like. Because take someone like I have family members who are belong to this camp. They're very conservative. And, you know, if you start talking about the planet and Mother Earth and various things, their eyes just glaze over. They're already, I mean, you know, I don't want to get political here, but we're not voting for the same people, right? Um, at the same time, they're good people who care about their community. They care about the long-term well-being of their grandchildren. And so translating, let's say, what, what we would typically consider sustainability messaging into something that they care about is going to take a, a different approach. It's going to take some different kinds of stories, some different kinds of characters, 
who, for example, might have uh, a religious worldview that not a lot of people on the more liberal side of the spectrum share. Those things, so it's kind of, it's it's about really understanding on a very deep level, your target audience, their core values, their core dreams, their core challenges, and making sure that with empathy, you translate whatever it is you need them to do, make it easy for them to do the right thing. This is obviously a core tenet of behavioral science, but also in terms of language, if I was to bring it back to communication psychology, I would say noise. The, the main thing is we don't tend to understand or fully appreciate the immense impact that noise on the line between communication and sender mm-hmm. has. So there's noise in the room because we may all think one way, but we're not the target audience. And then also really understanding on the other side, the noise that might be impeding reception of that message that you think is so beautiful and aesthetically designed and wordsmithed and so on and so forth. So so that would be my main, if I had to say just one thing, it would be to really get deep and get dirty with understanding the noise um, that's impeding that message sending and reception and really understand your target audience. I love this point you make on empathy and putting yourself in the shoes of the audience. I think the pitfall of sustainability communication is often that it is done with a moralizing subtone. Don't do that, do that. From the psychological point of view, that's, I guess, not the best way to engage people, right? Well, I think it depends on the values you're speaking to, right? Because if you're speaking to someone who has strongly biospheric values, meaning they care about, let's say, the planet and nature for nature itself and the planet itself, then, I mean, shame is not my area of core expertise, but I've studied it enough to know that shame is very rarely an effective way of getting people to undertake long-term change. It's a very short-term strategy. Guilt is a different thing because it speaks to things that people care about. Guilt is a very specific thing where I know that I did something wrong that's actually fundamentally against my own values. And it's something I can fix. It's something concrete and discreet. It's something I can take action on. So I've been uh, consuming and using and making food with a lot of beef in it this month. And so, you know, I but my values are this and this. Yeah, that's going to work to shame me about maybe because I'm realizing that I'm out of touch with my core values. But someone else who fundamentally doesn't share that biospheric value is going to just feel that you're out of place imposing your values onto them. So for example, currently, I'm, I'm currently doing a deep dive with trust and really thinking about the implications of how regulatory science and uh, trust and let's say public trust, what's commonly being called a public distrust of expertise. But one of the things I think we fail to fully appreciate is that when we say people, for example, in the U.S., that they don't, that wacky, and I'm, I'm saying this because I admit that, you know, this group of people who seem to not believe scientists, let's say about climate change, for example. You know, when you look at First of all, it's really problematic how we measure trust, how we ask people about trust, because a lot of what people say is mostly political signaling. Because more than anything else, we also know that we need to belong to our very closely held social groups in order to survive. So if I say, for example, that I believe in climate change in the U.S., automatically people put me into a certain box. They know a certain group I probably belong to. And if that goes against the group, you know, the, the values and the worldviews of the people who I care most about and who I have the strongest social ties to, that's actually a real threat. So we were talking about risk earlier. That's actually a real threat to my social belonging. And social belonging is critical for survival. 
But going back to guilt and shame and regulatory science, I think one of the things that we fail to appreciate is that when we ask people in the U.S., we take this, the U.S. as an extreme example of they trust science in general. Most people, even if they say they don't, if you look at their behavior, they actually do. Many of the same people who say they don't, for example, believe in climate change or human-caused climate change, they're also popping FDA-approved pills three times a day. So when you look at behavior, people tend to trust these organizations. But one of the reasons that people distrust is because a lot of the science we're talking about, including climate science, let's say here, for example, is that it ends up having these policy consequences, distributive consequences, which are inherently political. So when you say to someone, okay, this is the data, the data says this is what's happening in the atmosphere, this is what's changing, this is what's happening globally when we do this, this, and this, that's just kind of the facts. But once you translate that into, and therefore we should have these kinds of regulations, these cutoffs, these thresholds, you're automatically wading into values territory. And with political consequences. And people are going to experience that as a form of power, that they're also going to experience a form of what we call in psychology reactance to because they perceive it as a threat to their freedom. So going back to the concrete things, I think part of what we need to do is we need to understand these values rather than values are pretty stable and they're difficult to change. But they also get prioritized in different situations, as I was explaining earlier. So one of the things we need to do is respect and appreciate values that are different from ours and then figure out how can we tell stories and how, like true stories, meaningful stories that speak to people's core values. Let's stay for a moment on the topic of narrative design. In one of your studies, I read that using pessimistic endings creates a higher perception of risk and thus leads to heightened emotional arousal. Does this mean we need to have these downbeat endings and negative scenarios When we communicate on sustainability, don't we need to give people a little bit of hope? Well, this is a big discussion. Uh, and this is a big topic. Let's, let's say that. But going back to the fact that I say emotion is data. And I mean that in a very literal sense. That when the brain thinks something is important enough that the body needs to take action, it will sometimes create an instance of emotion. So emotion is data. It's, it helps to prioritize our scarce bodily resources. So when we construct an instance of emotion, this is a signal that something is super important for us. Now, in emotion research, you might have heard of the, this something, there's these different dimensions of emotion. Traditionally, we've said there are two. There's the valence, which is the emotional, it's the kind of the charge of the emotion, whether that's positive or negatively valenced, which is what you're referring to, Arne. And then there's the arousal level, um, Modern emotion research also looks at a third dimension, which is the motivational aspect. But for now, let's just keep it simple and say that these two comprise that and, and influence the motivation. So the valence of an emotion, the charge of an emotion, it has a certain specific informational value. So we're actually wired to pay more attention to negative information because often it's associated with our own survival. It's necessary. When you think about from an evolutionary perspective, if someone tells you something negative, we know that people have a preference or not a preference, they tend to pay more attention to negative information. Again, remember, it's a scarce bodily resource, so we have to prioritize what we pay attention to. And so negative information is more likely to get our attention. Now, that said, absolutely, there's a lot of nuance here because if people feel completely hopeless, then there's a higher likelihood that they might just 
be paralyzed and do nothing, right? So I think there's a lot of research still to be done, but I can tell you that in my own research, we have found, and it's also interesting, we're just such an optimistic species that even when we did, for example, to push it really to the limit, we did an apocalyptic scenario where we actually told people, now it's too late because the positive and negative was, one of them ended on like a hopeful note, another ended on a negative note. If we don't do something, it's going to be really, really bad. It was Mm. talking about pollinators. But the apocalyptic scenario said, it's too late. It's too late. It's already too late. And what's really interesting is we found that even in the most conservative segments of the population where, and these are people who, when I say conservative, I mean politically conservative, who would typically accuse, for example, sustainability and climate communicators of saying that they use this sort of the sky is falling approach to everything. Even in that condition, people were actually more, I won't use the word optimistic, it's something we measure called outcome efficacy. They had a sense that their own actions mattered and they could still turn things around. So there's something about the fact that we tend to pay more attention to negative emotion But I want to nuance that and say that, yes, at the same time, we are are also pleasure seekers. So Mm. one of, I think, the grand challenges ahead for sustainability communicators is to really tie, because perception is everything and people seek pleasure. And so much of our climate sustainability narratives have been negative, but that's a stick you can only use for so long because we know that at some point, apocalypse fatigue, what we call compassion fatigue, kicks in. We can only care about so many things. We can't Mm. care about everything at the same time. So I think we need to be mindful of how we use this negative valence because it works, but up to a point. And of course, like the little boy who cried wolf, at some point, people start to take it less and less seriously. Mm. So I think one of the grand and beautiful challenges ahead of us is how do we turn things that could otherwise be perceived as something negative, like something like, let's just take an example that Rory Sutherland Uh, he's from Ogilvie. I adore him. If you don't listen to Rory, check out his work. Um, He talks about, for example, you know, the the delays that you might incur with traveling with a train instead of driving, the inconvenience. How do we take that? And this is kind of a core marketing challenge, that delay and turn that into something positive that people can use, something people care about. People have scarce time. Suddenly it's a more productive, a more pleasurable experience. They don't have to stress about parking. They don't have to think about, you know, and this is just an example. Perception is everything. And how can we start to tie more into and create new sustainability narratives about things people value and care about? And not only the typical biospheric narratives that those of us who work in this field tend to lean on heavily. Really interesting. You touch based on the important topic of trust. For everybody who's working in the area of communication, a big worry is, of course, the accusation of greenwashing the contribution of one's organization. Can you please comment further on the importance of trust in communicating sustainability issues? I mean, trust is critical, obviously, because it underpins our ability to, I mean, Risk is a social construct. Let's go back to that. So it all depends on who is assessing and communicating the risk. So if I think that someone is and someone who exaggerates or or someone who is not speaking truthfully, um, obviously I'm not going to trust them as much. And one thing that I, I think is really important to highlight about trust is that it's a bet. Trust is a kind of a bet on an uncertain future. And when you give your trust to someone, you're assuming that their motives and intentions are benevolent. That that, And I think this is really important because 
in terms of who we trust, one of the things we know is that we tend to, and this kind of ties in with what Victoria was talking about earlier, is that one of the things we tend to do is we tend to trust people who we assume have our best interest at heart. Another way of saying this would be also to say that who we believe whose incentives align with our own. And I think this is one of the reasons why we see a lot of distrust. For example, if we take the recent pandemic, even if we take climate change, you know, when you look into people who distrust climate scientists, they often believe that um, it's because these these climate scientists have uh, hidden agendas. They're going for their careers rather than the best interest of the public. Same thing with the pharmaceutical companies. And so one of the best remedies we know for this is radical transparency and nuance. This is a tricky thing because, right, the, the truth is often very complicated. People want simple black and white answers to things. But we also know the research strongly suggests that the best way to build trust is to be radically transparent and also, even if that includes, for example, giving information that's not necessarily favorable to you, let's say in your company or your product or whatever, and to give people all the information, even if in the short term, it might, for example, with vaccine uptake, I know one of my colleagues at Aarhus University has done some interesting work that shows that when pharmaceutical companies also were very transparent about the risks and the potential downsides, adverse effects, things like that, in the short term, it might influence uh, vac vaccine acceptance negatively, but in the long term, it and even in the medium term, it radically improved trust and people's trust in the communicator. So I think one of the important things to constantly remember is that when we're asking people to trust us, we're asking them to place a bet. We're asking them, knowing that there's an asymmetry of information, to believe that we have their best interest at heart. And so it's obviously imperative that we actually do and we're not manipulating that and that we're also giving them as much information as we possibly can so that they can make the best decisions for themselves. So you're saying it's all about transparency. Don't overpromise the things that you are doing, but be radically open also on the shortcomings. In this regard, do you think that the new corporate sustainability reporting directive that will soon be implemented in Europe will help? Since there will be more transparency, there will be more data out there and that hopefully increase trust in the system? I think more data is always good. I just think that, it, you know, as I say, and this is one of the reasons why I'm I'm so intrigued by stories is, and data is a story, right? Because, I mean, I've worked in sustainability and also sustainability reporting. And so I know that you can, you know, how you measure things matters, what you choose to report on matters, right? And as you say, as there's increasing standardization, of course, this should increase trust. But I think it's important to remember that trust is not a binary thing. It's a mm. continuum. So we might trust people more and less in different areas. I think that it's, yes, the increased in transparency and reporting standards is a really important thing. But in the end, remember that most people are not necessarily going to be checking these things in detail. So it's important to remember that I think what Victoria was talking about in terms of organizational structure, that you have the people in place who buy into this. Because of course, you can have all the metrics in the world, but if the person who, or the people, the team who are actually in charge of uh, measuring these things aren't truly committed, or if you have a key stakeholder in that group who refuses to be radically transparent about some things, that's that's going to affect the the outcome and ultimately pose a different sort of risk for the organization. To inspire our listeners towards the end of this podcast, Victoria and Brandy, 
What are some success stories of organizations that have implemented some of the sustainability changes we've been speaking about in a very, um, you know, excellent way? Are there any companies or case studies that you particularly admire? Victoria, you want to go first? Uh, yeah. Okay. It's it's always it's always really hard um, to pick out stories because we're, it's usually a patchwork of of practices. I truly believe that all organisations can go on the journey that's needed. It's going to be harder for some. It's going to take longer, and it's going to need more inspired leadership. But I think that we could do well to look to some of those organizations that have had the luxury of starting with a blank sheet to say, okay, what did they put in place and, and how does it work? And one of those organizations that stands out for me is a company called Elvis and Cressy. I, I don't know if you know it, but they take reused, discarded fire hoses. That's how they started out uh, and turn them into upcycled luxury products that are sold in Harrods. The inspiring thing is the reason that they do that, the reason they started the company was to solve a problem of long-term well-being for all people on the planet, which was the problem of discarded waste of high-quality materials that literally just get put in a hole. And in terms of trying to then solve that problem, that led to then all the strategy that they created, including creating luxury handbags. And neither of them knew anything about luxury. And they give 50% of their profits to the fire workers trust. And they've kept to that the whole time. And that was because of relationship building. Uh, but it's more than that. I really uh, encourage people to look at their story because it just shows when you have a very, very clear purpose, what kinds of creative strategy will result. Nice. I'm also very hesitant to point out any one company because, as Victoria said, there's a patchwork of practices. And anytime you highlight one company, you also risk controversy and things like that. I mean, I know it's a tired hero, but I think pretty highly of Patagonia. I think that it's a brand that consumers resonate with. And also, I really like this idea of that they kind of dare to go out on a limb and say, actually, don't buy this if you don't need it, if you don't actually buy it. So getting people to be thoughtful about their consumption, we know that one of the main things people can do is to waste less and just simply buy less, which going back to my point about perception, and I know that there are a lot of nervous economists saying, but this is how like eternal growth, that sort of plane that never lands, this is how we've built our economy globally and, 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 and so on and so forth. But I think having new stories about what matters, about what well-being is, and, and I really believe that on an organizational level, on a corporate level, what Victoria was just talking about before, what she did was she told a story. Mm. And I think it's so important to say, and I, I wish more companies would dare to do this, because here's one thing. Sorry, I'm not giving you an actual company, but this is concrete advice. The hero's journey, if you don't know much about storytelling, look into the hero's journey. One of the critical elements of any really compelling, life-changing, transformational story is conflict and challenge. It's obstacles. The hero's so, journey. Yes, yes. And so one of the things that companies tend to do when it comes to sustainability, and especially on, you know, even when it comes to sustainability reporting, and I think is they tend to kind of always try to only highlight the good. And it's understandable because they want people to think well of them. But the thing is, is that we don't 
resonate. We don't connect with perfect people because we're not perfect. And companies, this idea that they have to somehow cover up all their weaknesses and all the bad stuff, I wish that more companies had the courage, the moral courage and fortitude to actually tell a true story of the obstacles they are facing as they try to do these things. Because what they tend to do is do it in the rear view mirror and then kind of mm-hmm. come out with things like, oh, yeah, and this is what we did. We look at 40% reduction and 50% reduction. And I wish and I truly believe that in terms of building trust and confidence and also inspiring other companies to take the leap, that companies would more transparently share the journeys they're on and also many of the challenges that still lay ahead. Well, we know that we use rubber for this, this, and this, and this rare earth mineral in our product. And so the challenge we're facing now is how do we replace that? And we're working on it really hard. But but the obstacles are part of what make us bond with people. And so I think from a corporate level, also having corporate stories where companies tend to put themselves out there and be vulnerable and share wholeheartedly the struggles they're facing as they try, they endeavor to reach their sustainability goals would be extremely effective. Rather than trying to present this picture of perfection, mm. which is so understandable because we all want other people to think well of us, but at the same time, it's just not authentic. It's not credible. And it's um, intimidating for others, no? Yes, yes, as well. And and I think I would underline that. And that's why um, I often come to the... Uh, to the summary of brave, vulnerable leadership. It's one of the key features of purpose-driven leadership. And the more that we, we have to understand that the more that people, we're all seeing the same data. Now, we're not all absorbing it in the same way at the same time. But this unsustainability data of locked-in issues that are not going anywhere but in the wrong direction until we do something drastic. And even then, we have it locked into the system. That is going in one direction and people are waking up daily to it. So the idea that an organization can present somehow some perfect view of the organization that they are is going to become, even if everything else stays the same, people are, that is going to become less and less and less credible. Organizations are going to lose trust. And it's such a great point you made there, Brandy. They, they will lose trust And they will therefore lose brand resonance, the ability for people to want to identify them just by continuing with what they're doing now, because it's just not going to feel credible. We know that this is tough and we know that we're all heading in the wrong direction generally now. So if there aren't stories about how hard it is and how long it's going to take, then it's not credible. And one of the things, actually, if I could just add a little something to that. Sure. Um, on this deep dive in trust, one of the things I'm looking a lot at is source credibility. What makes us trust someone as a reliable source of information? There are basically two things that comprise that construct when we measure it. One of them is perceived competence. And unfortunately, when it comes to scientists, that's one of the things we tend to harp on. You know, so we have these credentials, credentials, credentials. And from a corporate perspective, you could say, well, look at our sustainability report, look at our data, look at what we're doing. That's competence. There's another concept in there that people, it's much more nebulous and difficult to measure and understand, and that is the perceived trustworthiness. How do we decide who to trust? We know that from a scientific perspective, this causal path, does. is there a feeling that then makes us trust people 
Or do we trust people and then have a feeling of trust? We don't actually know that. That's an unanswered question in the research around the relationship between emotion and trust. But the important thing to highlight there is that on a subconscious level, we are constantly evaluating, can I trust you? And it's not based purely on competence. And so the numbers and the data are the competence part. I would argue the values, for example, around transparency and vulnerability, the values around we are willing to be honest with you about the fact that we really screwed up or we just discovered this terrible thing that we're now working to fix. Um, That is something that is fundamentally critical for building trust because the one thing we do know is that perceived trustworthiness actually weighs much more heavily than the perceived competence. So you can have all the data, the numbers, the PhDs, but in the end, if people don't actually see you as trustworthy, then they're not going to take you seriously and trust you. And can I just uh, just just add in there, because so much of what Brandy said, including what she just said there, helps decode and, and uh, reveal why purpose and becoming purpose driven is so critical. So I talk about the three powers of purpose, mm. clarity, strategic clarity that you know that everyone, not just you, but your whole stakeholder constellation knows what you are trying to achieve. And you're really, really clear about it. Secondly, meaningfulness that people don't just know where you're going, but they want to join you on that journey because it matters to them because it's connected to, as you said, Brandy, what matters most to you in in terms of the well-being of yourself and the people that you love into the future, i.e. sustainability. And the third one is authenticity, because purpose in those two other things allow people to authentically reveal what they're doing, why they're doing it, and to reveal the flaws in the journey. Because ultimately, if you're purpose-driven and you're trying to solve a massive problem in the world, the most efficient way to do that is to reveal to your stakeholders exactly what you're trying to do, exactly the barriers you face, so that they can work out how to best support you on that journey. Mm. It Mm. just makes logical sense. But if you're sitting in the middle of the triangle in logic one, in your BAU CSR mindset, then your motivation to act is essentially to make as much money for yourself as possible. Who wants to shout about that from the the rooftops? Nobody. Um, And therefore, you know, that's already a source of inauthenticity and therefore lack of trust. Um, But secondly, in responding to sustainability, you're essentially going to be oppression managing and doing a lot of inconsistency consistent and incoherent activities. Now, one of the things we also know about trust is that it comes down to a sense of consistency. Even people we don't like, we can trust if we feel that we are secure in understanding how they're likely to act in a certain circumstance that we might not have visibility on. And so if you see an organization doing a whole range of things that don't make sense against each other, then implicitly we're we're going to also not trust. So when we start thinking about purpose and the reason why despite all the challenges of moving away from a business as usual mindset, companies are taking that leap, taking that leap across the paradigmatic divide. It's because purpose essentially removes the tensions and issues that businesses are and are increasingly facing. And so, and one of those massive issues is around trust. And Victoria, just adding on to that, and this podcast will never end. It will be the never-ending <laughs> podcast. I love it. I love um, it. No, but when I think <laughs> of this from a storytelling perspective, that one of the things that really matters is that our characters are internally consistent, right? Mm-hmm. And so when you look at someone's values, and we know this from trust too, that breaches in trust are more easily forgiven when they're due to a perceived lack of competence. So we screwed up because we didn't know. We screwed up because we 
are learning. We screwed up because we're working on this. Very much more easily forgiven than a breach in trust because of malevolence or because of a lack of transparency, because you have more information and you've decided to hide that information from your stakeholders. So it's so important. Like it's messing up is not the problem. The problem is covering up. And the problem is, like you said, not conveying that congruence between what you endeavor to do and then actually what's happening. Exactly. And then when and then when we think we've set up businesses to be fundamentally, because they're not looking at the top of the bottom of the triangle I described, fundamentally at odds, their intention and their incentives are fundamentally at odds with society's best interests of long term well-being. That is irreconcilable, given where yes. we are and the fact that yeah. that's come home to roost. And purpose corrects that. And so mm. while some people will go, oh, that's too radical. I mean, how do we do that? We'll have to, you know, in my view, we will be moving to a command and control system where we will lose the market economy, we'll lose democracy, whatever we have of it, because it's all going to get too scary. And as you said, right, and the risk is going to get too high. If we want to preserve the freedom of choice that comes with democracy and with a market economy, then purpose is not something radical. It's the obvious rational step that we need to take now. I think this really calls for another episode. I think we can continue for a very long time. But for now, I'd, I'd like to thank you both very much for this really engaging conversation that we had. I think it was packed, jam-packed for our audience uh, with food for thought, but also very um, concrete and, and tangible um, ideas, how to shape better narratives, how to make better communication. Is there anything that we have forgot to address that you would like to add, that you would share with our audience at the end? I think uh, personally, there's probably a million trillion other things. We have such a, a fantastic overlap between our areas, as we mentioned, Brandy. So I'm going to stop myself because otherwise I think I could just go on and on. Brandy, anything from you that you would like to, you know, any any encouraging words to the communication and change practitioners out there in, in the organizations? Well, I, I just quickly to say a thank you to Victoria too. And I, I was super interesting and I just, you're so articulate about these things and I'm just so enamored with everything you were explaining earlier. And I guess from a communication perspective, the thing I would say, I'm kind of repeating myself, but I would reiterate that remember that the hero's journey is a journey. And if you look at all good stories, they are filled with a lot of obstacles and challenges to overcome. The important part is not to remove those. The important part is to be real about those and to truly understand the journeys that your stakeholders are on, really not trying to clean everything up and make it perfect because reality and these kinds of struggles, like this whole all or nothing thinking around sustainability, I think is very detrimental. You know, not shaming companies and not shaming organizations that are struggling, but actually this sort of narrative of overcoming is something that we as humans are also highly attracted to. And I think when Victoria talks about purpose, that's just so critical, right? Because in the end, we're working towards something and we're working towards something together. This inspires and creates meaning in a way that pure profit never can. So I think that it's kind of acknowledging the solidarity around this and not trying to present this perfect image to society about the sustainability struggles. That would be my main my main storytelling advice. If you wouldn't mind, I'll, I'll just end in case you can fit this in by saying I'm a fellow at the uh, University of Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Leadership and we have an eight-week 
online course that is is quite new. It's in its second running on sustainable marketing, media and creative. And it really is a way for people, uh, whether in marketing or not, because marketing affects everything, uh, to really share the journey with people and not just to reframe the nature of business and the role of marketing, but to work in real detail with other people to say, right, what are the changes that I can make now and look very deep into your own personal journey of leadership? Definitely, Victoria, we'll put this into the show notes and I can only personally recommend that. I just did a Cambridge course, eight weeks, a d different one than the one that you are leading, but I was really, really happy with it and I learned an, an awful lot. Victoria and Brandy, I thank you so much for your time. It was a little bit longer than anticipated, but I hope it was also worthwhile for you um, guys. Yeah, once again, thank you so much for having joined the Future Ready podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Future Ready. This podcast is produced with love by Cozin, a global communications and change agency on a mission to shape healthy and thriving businesses. Find out more at wearecozin.com. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a review or forward this show to someone who you think will love it. Thank you very much for this and until very soon. Music